disclaimers. So first of all, this is a reformed accent, but it's not exclusively reformed. People from all different walks of faith may find these things relevant, may agree with them, may use them, etc. We're not trying to claim exclusivity over any of them. However, when they are all blended together, they perform something, they form something of a reformed accent. So I want to mention that. Also, if any of you were at CEA last year and you heard Mark Vanderwerf's excellent Is Reform Still Relevant presentation, this is not meant to supplant or replace in any way, rather it's meant to build off of that. And so we'll talk about that in a little bit. Linked in our slides, there's a bitly at the end. Listen to it, it's fantastic and useful in case you want some more theological, historical underpinnings of where this stuff all comes from. Our presentation is meant to be practical, so it's going to have three parts. It's going to have some examples from us that we'll share. We're going to have some time for you to discuss with people around you in some small groups. And then hopefully you got the reformed bingo card on the way in. Follow along and see if you can get five in a row, including diagonals, for each individual section. And we'll review those at the end to make sure that we you know, get our buzzwords and things like that. So we have to acknowledge here at the start that the term reformed is both beautiful and broad. It's almost too much. So a few categories help us think about what we're talking about in small, usable bites. The reformed expression of Christianity has three main branches. Confessional, that is using creeds and church history documents like the Apostles' Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort. Pietistic, using personal expressions like prayer and Bible reading to express faith. And transformational, using the ideas that we know to power what we do today, now, in society, to build God's kingdom starting right now. I hope that didn't insult anyone by reviewing those terms. I feel like I was well into my teaching career before someone spelled that out to me, and it was even later in my career that someone suggested a good way to think of it is head, heart, and hands. My point here at the outset is that we acknowledge the similarity and differences between these strains and their complementary nature, and that we challenge ourselves to achieve a balance between all of these strains. Is our school, your school, my school, all read the Bible and pray more? Does our school ever address issues going on in the community that might, or even in the world, that might have to do with justice, for instance? Does anyone even teach church history anymore? So, as we get into the trees or the weeds of our lesson plans and being reformed, let's keep the big picture in mind. The big picture of these three strains and the big arc of all of scripture, that is creation, fall, redemption, uh, and restoration or recreation. Speaking of weeds and trees, let's talk application in terms of three areas. Lots of threes here, you know? Um, how we interact with our students, how we interact with our community, and how we interact, oh sorry, interact with our students, our curriculum, and our community. So, let's start with how we interact with our students. This first idea deals with a part of our lesson plans that's never really in the instructional objective. Here's my example. How do we talk about and deal with cheating in our classroom? I don't know if you know this or not, but technology has made cheating both more accessible and more prevalent. <laughs> what is wrong with cheating? How do you explain it to your students? Do you go right to the consequences, or do you deal with it as a theological issue? Is it just getting caught? Is it just being lazy? I think it's very important to frame cheating as a sin that does several things. It breaks trust between teacher and student, and sometimes between student and student. And it fails to love God and others. That's a big picture view that thinks about how creation is supposed to be, and how sin has broken relationships apart. So part of our challenge is 
talking about how those relationships can be, again, restored after the, such a tear. Do we just give it attention? Do we allow for redos? Do we have conversations with students and with students with each other? What about the relationship? I also think it's important to talk to students about cheating as a form of stealing from another person, uh, with or without their knowledge. Yeah, I actually had a student take from another student's Google Drive without their knowing it because they guessed it passed It was a question about how does this apply to your life? Wow, it applies exactly the same as, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's take a cue from the Heidelberg Catechism, which frames every commandment both negatively and positively. Stealing isn't just taking. It's also squandering God's gifts. So when a student cheats, he or she is stealing from themselves in terms of the knowledge they could have gained. I know, I have a very high view of my assignments. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not using the gifts that God has given you to learn something. So it's important to acknowledge our foundation in a belief in total depravity. No, our students are not as bad as they could be. And every day I think I give thanks for the fact that my students are actually quite cooperative and wonderful. But when I have to answer questions like, why won't I let you choose your own music on our work day? Why am I using Go Guardian to monitor your Chromebook use during class? It's not Big Brother, or Big Sister in my case. It's a belief that all of us do the wrong thing sometimes when given the opportunity or choice. I think it's important to say that. But it's also an important and exciting to point out ways that good is still prevalent in our world. I've started class by showing a video of one of my students who's involved in competitive ice skating. What does this have to do with bio class? Right, God's latent goodness. I got a kid who is a professional disc golf player. I intend to show a video of him disc golfing on Monday morning because that is goodness in creation and restoration by what he does. These videos right? aren't replacing your grandchild, are they? Oh, uh, never. <laughs> that's usually how she starts, so just making sure. There's more goodness. What there. are you doing? We want to talk about how Christians and non-Christians are bringing this broken world back together. Here's one example of what that might look like in an assignment. In our freshman foundations bio class, we have students research an organization that has something to do with a career they might be interested in. I mean, they're 14. They don't really know. But someone who's doing that as restorative work. So a girl who says, I'm interested in becoming a photographer, researches a photography studio that specializes in photographing families, including children with special needs. I had someone who did, I, I want to be a car mechanic. Here's an organization that's a special reduced rate for widows and orphans, or people on low with low incomes. I encourage my engineers to find people who do things like, oh, I don't know, build bridges so people in Africa can walk across a bridge to get food rather than miles around the river, former students at Thornton University. <clears throat> this encourages kids to see their college decision and their job choice as more than just how much money they can make, right? How can their vocation join God's work to be part of building the kingdom here and now? Creation Fall Redemption also ties into vocation when students ask the question of why do I need to be here? Well, it turns out, Billy, that you might use history later in life, and it could be important. Sure. And because wise people before you have encountered the same problems that we do, and we'd rather you start from square 14 rather than negative 4, or even 0. <laughs> oh, you're going to be a mechanic. That's great, too. Let's also make sure our mechanics know some history so that they're better informed citizens. Vocation involves partnering with God's kingdom and bringing it into the here and now, no matter what your eventual occupation may be. Besides talking up the importance of educating Renaissance people, this also means praying, perhaps, for individual occupations at the start of your class. 
we got this idea from David Smith, who was a speaker last year, a couple years ago here, and he said, well, how often are you praying for specific vocations? Many of us often open a word of prayer for medical personnel, first responders, et cetera, especially recently, and rightly so. Have we expanded that? Have we shown that everybody is in full-time Christian ministry no matter where they are? This means looking at the innate goodness of creation in all different kinds of areas. It also changes how we deal with tragedy, with grief. Uh, Reverend Dr. Mary Holst spoke a few years ago at CEA, and she said, don't say everything works out for good in sort of a really small context. We, we rather say everything will be redeemed. Not that everything turns out okay, but everything will be redeemed. This changes how we deal with tragedy. We at Holland Christian High School are familiar with this, with a couple of examples from about six years ago when we had more funeral days than snow days during a given year, with premature deaths of students, of parents, of fellow staff members, etc. How do you walk alongside students to answer those difficult questions? I don't have answers to theodicy in this presentation, that's beyond our scope, but certainly giving answers of everything will be redeemed is certainly more helpful than everything will work out and we're trying to be a little bit more trite, I think so. This also means that our emphasis on God's sovereignty means that we're not doing this whole I'll fly away as much as I love that song. Its theology is somewhat askew. We're not just hoping to twiddle our thumbs until we can get a get-out-of-hell-free card and go away to heaven. We're supposed to bring things into the here and now, which means that tragedy matters. We sit in it, and then God will eventually redeem it. Maybe we can partner with him. Ultimate redemption obviously comes from the second coming. We push students beyond easy answers because of this. We need to use discernment when discipling our students. And so this means when we're doing spiritual mentoring and encouraging them, this means maybe you recommend this book to this student, this book to this student, not because you're trying to, well, this is spiritual differentiation, right? You're trying to make sure that you're helping them with their individual strengths and making sure that you're challenging them right where they are. Uh, insert some sort of reference to the zone of proximal development. I believe I get a point from my education professors every time I say that, right? You need to challenge students at an appropriate level and that applies to spiritual stuff as well because otherwise how can they be effective partners in this whole process together? Uh, we want our students to be spiritually mature, of course, and the pietistic strand means we need to be realizing that there are spiritual practices that are useful. Uh, James K. H. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, that several of us read a few years ago, very helpful. What sort of formative, transformative discipleship practices are we doing on a daily basis in our classrooms to make sure that we can have communal practices, perhaps? My colleague, Chris Jacobs, who's in our second row right there, does a really excellent job of this with some of his personal devotions, teaching students spiritual practices, of centering themselves on prayer and on scripture and things like that that are really great. That's part of that pietistic strain. I need help with that. I reach out to him sometimes. We can do this together. It's a communal enterprise, for sure. So, how have you done some things to implement reformed thinking in how you interact with your students? Um, I've been doing this for 30 years. He's been doing this for 10. He's already better at it than I am. Um, and we got like a little timer in here and everything, all fancy schmancy. Um, but I, could you find three or four or five people around you and just say, hey, has anybody done anything that clicks with what they've been talking about, how you interact with your students, <laughs> the assignments you give, how you deal with cheating, uh, how you explain to students why they need to know what you're teaching them about your subject area, how you teach discernment, or how you disciple individual students. I know, that's a really tall order for two and a half minutes. But um, just talk to each other. We'd love to hear a couple good ideas to everybody, but just talk to people around you if you don't mind, please. How does this apply to you?
or say, hey, I, I just learned something from somebody else around me. Anybody over on this side, what do we got? Anybody say, oh, somebody <coughs> give me an idea or something about cheating or about how to deal with students or what we do? I know, I heard you talking. Sir? So Jonathan, sir. Wow. So Jonathan teaches uh, art history and does some stuff. And of course, there's a lot of news in art history. But he spends a lot of time talking with the kids about how you deal with that and how we hold that in our heads and how you work with that, which I thought was brilliant. Two snaps and a free spot for him. <laughs> Way to go. That was, that's amazing. There's another, you could try the just avoid talking about thing. That's another option. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Thanks for that work. Anybody else? What else you got? Somebody gave you an idea of how to be reformed sort of implicitly. Does anybody talk about cheating? What do you say? What do you say about cheating? Do you say it makes you cry? Very effective when you're old. The conversation about cheating, occasionally, on an assignment that might be easier to cheat, I sometimes have that conversation before anybody cheats, which seems to curtail cheating when you thought through the implications ahead of time rather than waiting for them to do it and then end up in this afterwards. And again, building on that relationship. You know what? If you're having a particularly busy day or some other issue with this assignment, I have a could you could you tell me about that? I would I wouldn't know otherwise. And to talk about it beforehand here, you know, I've had some I've had some cheap. Great. I don't accept late work. I do grant exceptions and exemptions to that policy. Right? You gotta but you gotta talk to me first. It's part of that relationship. One of the ways of counteracting total depravity is building on relationships so we keep each other accountable in mutually accountable ways. And Absolutely. I highly recommend the Bible Project videos about sin. <laughs> those are good. So those of you playing along at home, notice we have two full bingos from this past session. This was a heavy one. So we had, of course, confessional, pietistic, and transformational, the three main strands going down. We mentioned total depravity a few times. Kingdom was a little more implicit in the background. Transforming the world. We don't like that one. We'll hit it again. Um, redemption, the cultural mandate, as in like we're called in different kinds of areas, and different kinds of vocations. They're sort of connected. We have to fill up 25 squares. Give us a break. Okay. And then we're, we're partnering with God in the restoration. Hopefully, you saw that. You may use this as a as a note sheet, I suppose, too. But you know, who doesn't want to win bingo or something like that? So there might be two other ones with our other two sections. So pay close attention. You get brownie points at the end, and I hear that if they rack up enough brownie points in your class, they uh, actually get real brownies. <laughs> this is unfortunately a one-time only thing, so. So, how we interact with curriculum, our next section. I'll be honest, uh, this is the part that got me really fired up and why I wanted to even do this in the first place. Uh, I guess I'm outing myself as a transformationalist, more than a doctrinalist or a pietist, although I love those ones as well. Uh, on a recent trip to Israel, meaning six years ago, because COVID dilates time in weird ways, uh, six years ago I was in Israel with Ray Vanderlaan, and he mentioned this idea of the Shefela, or Shefela, depending on how you want to pronounce it, ask a Bible teacher. And the idea there is that the Israelites were called to live on the hill country between the mountains of disengaged people and the, and the coastal plains of the Philistines. They were called to be a light to other nations while being on the trade routes of that area and not disengaged, but not completely absorbed. I think it's a fantastic metaphor for Christian education, especially Reformed Christian education. One of the biggest distinguishing features of Reformed Christian education, especially as opposed to more fundamentalist schools, would be our belief in common grace. This means we look for good things from God, even in non-Christian sources. We don't shy away from the culture, but instead we interact with it with wisdom, with discernment, with wisdom seeking led by the Holy Spirit. We don't retreat into the hills or assimilate into the culture on the coastal plain 
We seek to transform the world for Jesus Christ. I believe I get a raise from Holland Christian every time I mention part of our mission statement. Which I really like. Equipping minds, nurturing hearts, to transform the world for Jesus Christ. Now we're talking about that last part, the head, heart, hands. This means engaging with the hard stories of the Bible in Bible class. Engaging with the latest evolutionary data in science class without fear, even as we might disagree with ourselves. Engaging in, in, in age-appropriate ways about topics of sinfulness, nudity and classical art. Engaging with tricky questions, etc. Uh, you know, I might have some things to say about this, but I think there's also some really fantastic quotes that I've found, and I have too many to include in the slide presentation. Bear with me as I commit a teacher's sin of reading some things off of a slide. <laughs> but they say things way better than I can. For instance, let's go to the CRC pamphlets on what it means to be reformed. It doesn't get any more reformed than that. It's literally the title of the pamphlet. What does it mean to be reformed? Reformed communities have established Christian schools from preschool to graduate school, not to protect students from the world, but to give them tools to engage any aspect of culture from the perspective of God's kingdom. A little bit later. Furthermore, Christian, Reformed Christians also strongly distinguish themselves from fundamentalism with its anti-intellectualism, suspicion of science, and learning that arises from a lack of emphasis upon the doctrine of creation, its lack of cultural engagement, its tendency to emphasize the rule of Christ in the world to come rather than this world right now, a tendency to arise from a dispensational understanding of history in which the kingdom of God is still a future reality. It's the already but not yet sort of idea that I thought was rather useful. Or All these quotes will be available in the slides. Of the, the, or as I say in freshman Bible, is it just to be whooshed off the heaven? I had students write down on a A little bit longer, but from a banner article from a few years ago. Parents should expect that the Christian school classroom will be free of rhetoric, fear-mongering, and stereotypes as teachers walk and talk with their students through complex topics. In a Christian school, children should never hear statements like, we don't ask those questions around here. Rather, Christian schools need to honor the questions that are raised as much as the answers. Okay, I said to him, I'm going to interrupt you at this point. I actually say this to students. I would rather have a good question than a good answer. I love good answers. And I love good questions. And about, you know, halfway through the semester when they know me, kid asks a really good question, I say, hey, I'll ask a question over here. <laughs> and then, ha, 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 good for you. I said, I'm learning. I'm not just a teacher. We have to validate the question. Even if we don't want to Christian schools must empower their teachers and students to avoid simple and trite answers to topics that are due much respect and thoughtfulness. Some parents believe that sending their kids to a Christian school will protect them from the competing stories, what James K. A. Smith calls cultural liturgies. But it will not. A Christian school that does not engage the culture in which students live does its children and parents a disservice. Rather, Christian schools are to equip students with the tools to identify and respond to the idols of our time, one more one from James K.A. Smith, because we have to quote him at least three times. It's reformed. First, Christian education is not merely meant to be safe education. The impetus for Christian schooling is not a protectionist concern driven by fear to sequester children from the big bad world. Christian schools are not meant to be moral bubbles or holy huddles where children are encouraged to stick their heads in the sand, which ostriches don't do because otherwise they'd all be dead. That's evolutionary groups. Dumb. You get it, my predators. Sorry, I'm really passionate about that. Um, rather, Christian schools are called to be like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Not safe, but good. Mm, I like that one. Instead of antiseptic moral bubbles, Christian schools are moral incubators that help students not only to see the glories of God's creation, but also to discern and understand the brokenness of the fallen world. They're not a place for preserving naive innocence. They're laboratories. You see, it's a lens and a microscope through which to see the entire world. Some nice science call-outs there. Um, just to move back to this. So, when it comes to all of this stuff, let me get back to where I need to be here. Reformed education needs to use discernment, not assimilation. Engagement, not censorship. One of the saddest moments for me recently was a parent from a local Reformed church who said that they send their kids to Holland Christian, quote, to protect them from the world. 
which is emphatically not the purpose of Christian education, or reformed education in particular. Another colleague asked why we teach books about controversial hot-button topics that are in the news, or why we read books about things that are supernatural like ghosts or magic that we don't believe in. I guess goodbye Shakespeare then. Uh, we recognize this, but, we, but these are things that we don't know and we need to talk about, right? We recognize the fallibility in all human hearts as a result of the fall, what Kuiper calls the antithesis, yet we also acknowledge the presence of common grace. We may disagree on the exact percentage breakdown of common grace versus like fallen nature, and is it 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, 50, 90, 10? I don't pretend to always, uh, to always get it right or to have all the answers, but in the midst of recent book bans and other such stuff, we need to do better. I'm going to read a couple of examples here, and I hope you'll excuse the reading. We can't discern our way through pornography, but we can address the appropriateness and discuss the appropriateness of, say, nudity and classical art statues. Thank you again. We don't show the opening scene to Saving Private Ryan to eighth graders, but we do discuss what kind of postcards, postcards, folks, that we show from racial terror lynchings at the turn of the century. We don't advocate for specific abortion or LGBTQ policies, but we do mention in our history classes Roe v. Wade and the Stonewall riots, and we mention them without demonizing people. That's sometimes difficult, right? We share our reformed perspectives without denigrating other forms of Christianity that will certainly be in the room. We don't endorse naturalism or naturalistic evolution, but we do understand science, and we don't hide it from our students as if that would undermine their faith. We talk about the common grace present in all religious traditions, not to be relativistic and say all ways lead to Jesus or to heaven or to the truth, but rather to see what can we learn from other committed believers that we can perhaps incorporate into our own faith life. We don't appreciate and listen to any and all music, but we can appreciate the truths found in many non-Christian songs, even ones with a few swears. We need discernment for which all of these topics need a lot of, and you know, what grade levels, what contexts are we going to use. We need to teach students to read critically, to analyze points of view, to assess compatibility with a reformed worldview, whatever that looks like. We take scholarship seriously from all areas of legitimate inquiry, from Christians and non-Christians, and this applies to all classes. Bringing Christ's kingdom applies to every square inch of life. Another bingo for you down there, right? This is why Christian education is so much more than just taking a public education, maybe even an elitist, uh, very nice public education, and then sprinkling in a layer of Bible, chapel, and devotions on top. But to be clear, all this talk about reading books by non-Christians and how reform curriculum is more than Bible class, classroom devotions, and chapel, let's acknowledge it's also about Bible class, classroom devotions, and chapel. Reading the Bible is, of course, still really important. But here's something that has challenged me as a Bible teacher and a writer of devotions and as a chapel speaker. Do we read the Bible? Or do we read about the Bible? Sometimes I think we bemoan the lack of basic biblical knowledge in our current students, and I agree. But are we working with the other sides of the triangle to encourage primary source reading of the Bible? Are we doing our part to help our students read the Bible, giving them time in class to read the Bible, giving them tools? Are we giving our students tools to rightly divide the word of truth? Do they know how to use different versions on Bible Gateway? Do they know how to use a commentary? Have they ever been introduced to a website like Blue Letter Bible? Part of our freshman Bible <laughs> Foundation's Bible curriculum includes three days at the beginning of the semester. I will confess, three excruciatingly painful, <laughs> slow-moving days teaching kids how to use every one of those tools. But the payoff is so worth it. I can give a spiritual discipline assignment every Wednesday, read this, in th this version, 
look it up in this commentary, check out this word in the original language from Blue Letter Bible, and they can then do it. I've given them these tools to do it, okay? By the time our students are seniors, we start off first day of comparative religions class with a journal reading involving reading a passage and asking what does it say, what does it mean, what does it mean to me. We hope those kids will move from saying answers like what I call Jesus jargon, like we need to tell people about Jesus or God loves us no matter what. These things are true, but there's got to be more, right? We want our students to be Bible lovers of the word and scholars of the word. Think about what's the, I mean, I have kids ask the question, what's the context of this passage? I faint, and then I get up and say, that's a really good question, thank you. <laughs> what does that word actually mean in the original language? Again, thank you for your report. I'll be back in a minute. Um, when we do, when kids do devotionals for their volleyball team, it won't just be about how it's about them, right? <laughs> And how it makes them feel. Spike and blocks in. Come on. About what, <laughs> about what the Bible is actually saying, which of course is incredibly relevant to them and to all of us. So once again, a brief conversation. How about you apply this to your particular context? We'll give you two and a half minutes. I'm going to go back to this slide so that way you can see some of the things we just talked about in case that happens to be relevant. Uh, just forewarning, I'd love some elementary examples because uh, you cannot pay me enough to teach elementary, and we want some of those. Um, administrators, we haven't forgotten about you either. This is, there's uh, community relations is coming up next. That may be more of your thing, but either way, if you want to tackle it, I'd love to hear from you too. Talk about curriculum. Curriculum.
ninth graders got it wrong. They don't, they don't know what books are in the Bible and they don't know where they are. Yeah. I quote the book of Hezekiah all the time in my class. It's very handy. It's very handy. <laughs> Anybody else? Well, thank you very much. That's, that's really important. And I always bring, I always bring my alarm. I say, you want to talk a sword, man? I take somebody out this hard. You know? Yeah, I, I try to model that even having my own Bible. Anybody else? Another? Can I ask you a question about your guardians? Sure. So I teach a lot of junior high Bible. Do you have any external resources that work at that age group for, like, because I'm getting into the word, but I want, like, something a little bit extra me. I've never taught junior high because that's a special gift. <laughs> um, Extra jewels in the crowd. I would say, yeah, anybody else uh, in, the, in middle school. I just think even, if you, it is online, but I mean, Bible Gateway, I'm just old enough to say, I see my students, you have thousands of dollars of resources at your fingertips for free, and just scroll down, you know, the common English and easy to read, and just, just trying to get to that. And, and to learn to say the words, you know, just can, can you say, oh, you said it wrong, let's all say it together. You know, it's a Sadducee, it's a Pharisee, or whatever. You know, because kids, what are they really afraid of when it comes to reading the Bible? Looking dumb, right? So just anything you can do to try to make them way smart. This is sort of tangentially related, but I don't teach Bible. But I have learned that a lot of my students don't know about simple English Wikipedia. You folks know about that? So, like, the normal URL for Wikipedia is en.wikipedia.org. If you replace the en, which stands for English, with other ones, you can get other languages. If you replace it with the word simple, you get simple English Wikipedia, which is meant for English language learners or younger students. And it doesn't exist for every article, usually just the top articles. But sometimes when I come across, like, one on, like, carbon dating or something that's just, like, pages of technical nonsense, I replace the en with simple and then it's a lot easier for me to just access right away. I love using it with my students and showing that to them as a way to sort of introduce the research. Obviously, we're not citing Wikipedia, but like it's a great gateway for things. So if you need to pair it with what is a Sadducee, I don't know if the Simple English Wikipedia exists for that entry, but it could be useful for some of those more technical Bible terms along the way as a poor man's middle school commentary in a certain sense. Could be useful for what it's worth. And then I, I use, because I teach most of the Bible, uh, as a supplement, not as not a supplement, as an addition to reading, the Bible Project has a great is a great source. Mm. It's all the different uh, books in the Bible. It's some different uh, terms, some some ideas uh, from the Bible that that uh, kids maybe may or may not understand. Uh, I just find it's a it's a good one to help explain some things. Just tell your kids that they met their youth pastor at a skateboard park, and then he got them into the Bible, and they go, all became Hebrew scholars because of their youth pastor. It makes you feel good. It makes the kids feel like they're cool, you know? So, yeah, it's good stuff. All right, pass the wonderful quotes. There are also more in the presentation that I skipped over in the presentation presentation, so feel free to look at those later. Um, this is what we got last time. We got the diagonal. So we talked about confessional already, but then we mentioned common grace and how that exists and everything. That's the latent goodness of creation that's still around post-fall. Discernment, very, very important, and discussions we need to be having every square inch of bringing God's kingdom into a certain place. So kingdom, if you didn't like that last time, we've mentioned that this time again. And then God's sovereignty was a little bit more implicit this time too, but that's the whole idea of every square inch belongs to Jesus. We need to reclaim it for him. Not in a sort of dominionist, sort of creepy Christians take over the world sort of way, but in a, in a spiritual sense. So when 
Kim and I first began planning our presentation, we thought about the categories of how to interact with students, curriculum, community. I asked him a little bit out of the blue, Kim, what's your least favorite day of the year? He thought for a moment and then said, Grandparents Day. <laughs> I didn't just laugh, I got thought. Okay? I couldn't have agreed more. That was exactly what I was thinking. I try not to be the teacher that has one answer specifically in mind when you're asking, but yeah, that's what he did. With one exception, the year that I had a grandparent called President Obama call leader, um, all of my many experiences <laughs> with Grandparents Day have been wonderful. My dread is almost always unfounded. Mm -hmm. And why do we do Grandparents Day, even on a high school level? What makes that day amazing? If I can take a step back and get past the lost instructional time and the incredible amount of planning it takes and how nervous I get. Grandparents Day is one example of how our community show, as well as tell, of God's faithfulness through the generations. That's covenant theology in a folding chair on the back of my class. A grandparent says to me, a grandpa says, I had your dad for a teacher. And grandma says, I love studying the Bible. Today I get to do it with my granddaughter. And in front of the classroom, where a retired first reformed pastor is sitting in the front row, and I admit to him, you know, you're a little intimidating to me today. He says, this is great stuff. Today, I'm just a grandpa, and I love seeing what my granddaughter gets to learn here. So many years after I was a student in the very same school. How can we make those sort of covenantal connections happen more often? What assignments can we give that involve interviewing parents and grandparents about the faith story of their particular family or their church family? How can we get those folks into our schools, safely, of course, to witness what we do and to be a witness for us? When Ileana's new campus included a coffee shop that was going to be run by volunteers, I was skeptical about how many people were going to want to be involved. Boy, was I wrong. Grandma and grandpa and retired teachers and great aunts and uncles loved coming in for a first-hand report on how Kyle was doing. In the drawer of our coffee shop is a printout of every kid's ID with their name and their photo, and the volunteers consulted during slow times to learn every kid's name. Another example, one assignment that I've done in my U.S. history class before is I've had them go home when we're talking about a little bit of church history. We also used to teach some more Highland history, which is where the CRC and RCA split happened, and we give them all these granular theological details that no one seems to care about. We have them go home and say, where do you attend church? What's your spiritual background? Talk to your parents. Why do you go where you go? What do you like about this church? Please don't say, we like the preaching and the music. I want more depth. This has often generated a lot of, I already know this, but, but sometimes it's been a, I didn't know this. And I've had occasionally parents say, why are you assigning me homework? How dare you? That was one time. But I've also heard from multiple more parents who say, I'm glad I got to have this intentional conversation with my son or daughter about where, what my faith walk is, why we're going where we're going. We try to make it a little bit open, so we say, what faith tradition, if any, do you come from? Sometimes we have international students. We can make this hospitable while also covenantal. Now, this year, I'll be honest, uh, it was a casualty of recent curricular shifts a little bit, so we no longer teach Holland, Michigan history for two weeks, which I think was a good change. But uh, I'm, I'm thinking of other ways that we can incorporate those kinds of paradigms and assignments in our future assignments. How can we encourage, again, from David I. Smith, homework is not just I shut myself in my room and I read things by myself, but also making it communal, making it covenantal, making it home-connected. Speaking of assignments, can we talk about how busy our students and their families are? We can talk some other time about whether that's all entirely good, but for now, let's just acknowledge that it is. My husband and I, the person who gave me the bingo card, so it's library, library, and library here tonight, um, <laughs> challenged ourselves this year to go to each level of each sport at our school. We, we missed girls' golf season. It was like a minute. 
But uh, we've seen a lot more games than we ever have. In the past, we've always been very faithful about attending concerts and plays and musicals, but we had gone years without seeing the boys' soccer match. We attended a lot of sport, fall sports already this year. It's been great for getting to know students in a different context. Turns out that kid who struggles to sit still in my class is a fabulous soccer player. It's a great way to appreciate that our students are different from each other, but each one has gifts, and each person is made in God's image. It's a great reminder. But our attending games and matches and meets has also given me and my beloved a new appreciation for how much time such activities involve. Our students go to games under the lights on weeknights, which means they don't get back until, to school until very late. Should we take those things into consideration when we assign homework? What about the old idea of Sabbath? I know some projects are long-term and involve weekends, but both David Smith and my colleague Mark Dyster challenged me to give students only two weekend assignments, rest and worship. And as long as I'm perhaps not making any friends, I'm going to bring up another subject <laughs> that I've recently come to see from a different perspective. Our wonderful and amazing reformed notion of vocation and calling has another side to it. It can be a lot of pressure on kids to find their God-given purpose and determine what God wants you to be when you grow up. And you were born for such a time as this! <laughs> please don't stop talking about God's plans for them. But please be aware that the perfectionists in front of you need a lot more grace. Concerning my vocation, was really easy. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. Because my parents made <laughs> look so easy. My family's basically one day called to Christian educated teachers. <laughs> Are you sure you want to be? Uh, even my adopted sister, who was like, uh, it's not in the genes for me, ha ha ha, became a teacher for one year before going to med school. So, ha ha, nature and nurture. <laughs> Speaking of parents, though, uh, last part about community, we probably all heard the church, home, and school paradigm that's very, very useful. Although, shall we say, some difficulties have arisen in that regard recently. How do you raise students in covenant schools? when different constituencies seem to have very different ideas about what this looks like. Luckily, I have a solution for you. Buy my book that's coming out in the fall. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, I always hate when people do that at talks. But, one of the pieces of advice that I have written about in other places is to lead with questions. Reformed Christians, we need to recognize that different constituencies in this alliance will ask different questions, have different concerns, and we all partner together for the same purpose, but we approach it from different angles. Literally, in the triangle case, right? Earlier, we referenced using curricular choices and discernment. This needs to be communicated proactively, not just when a parent complains about something, right? Parents need to know what reformed means, and they often don't. If they assume that you are just, again, public education with a veneer of chapel and Bible, they won't understand. If they think you're a fundamentalist cloister meant to keep kids safe in an incubator, an incubator actually prepares you for the outside world, so that's a bad metaphor, but you understand what I mean. Holy huddle, I believe, is how we put it then we need to be forthright about this. It turns out that reform is not just conservative evangelicalism as it's understood in, on cable news, let's say. Right? We don't want to monolithicize ourselves, but the media also monolithicizes us as well. Dan Landstra from Unity mentioned this yesterday if you went to his presentation. What are you for? Not just what are you against. Is a really great way to be proactive with parents. How do we model that we are supposed to agree to disagree sometimes? How can we reinforce what's being taught at home while also introducing a variety of Christian voices? Our school has a reconsideration of forms, of uh, materials form, excuse me, that we use when parents don't like something that's in the curriculum. And I like that. And I also would urge you, if you do something similar, have at least two options there, though. One of them says, I don't like this, and I would like my child to somehow do an alternative whatever. 
On the other side, there is a, I think this is highly inappropriate, these ships should be removed from everybody. But notice those are two very different options. One of them says, uh, I'm making a, I'm, I'm from a fundamentalist Baptist background, and I, I don't like this reformed thing that you're doing here. I'd like my child exempt. We can be hospitable, perhaps, in that way, depending on what it is. The other one says, no, no, no. You're doing something that goes against your reformed identity as a school. I would like you to not do it for everybody. Notice the threshold goes way up from the first to the second, yes? And so one of them is an institutional focus rather than a hospitable individual family choice. I think that that's rather useful. Or, and it's risky, Maybe throw out this question of why we should or shouldn't study something at a Christian school. Throw it to the students. We have three members of, of four, five. Lots of members of my English department here in the front row. And I don't know that we still do this assignment, but remember the one where pick a piece of literature that we studied this year and say why it absolutely should stay in the curriculum forever or this has got to go. So good for the kids to think about that. Practicing discernment. Last year, I got in a bit of hot water over a video I signed about the sexualization of women in advertising. When parents protested, I answered their questions about the context of the assignment and what I discussed with the kids before it, my purpose in doing it. But I also asked the kids. I said, so, something with the fan yesterday. <laughs> what about it? I have never had such an energizing discussion with my graders. And they were all of that. One kid, I closed it, Mrs. Library, I couldn't look at it only I didn't really listen. Those pictures were, were, were bad for me. They'll be in my head forever. That was not good for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. I had to go back to the class. I, I learned a bunch of stuff for a test I took last week. I don't even remember it anymore. I'm never going to forget what that lady said. That's it, right? That's the, that's the spread. So, I mean, that's not, that's not easy to deal with. Okay? One more quick example in my AP World History class. I've had my students not just read about the scramble for Africa or the transatlantic slave trade, I've actually had them read articles from fellow educators, AP World History teachers, that say, should we do a scramble for Africa simulation in our class? Should we play rock, paper, scissors while we're claiming pieces of land through genocide? And why might that be appropriate or not? Rather than just telling them that we're not going to do the simulation and then explaining why, I have them read this article where it's a teacher talking to other teachers saying, Here's why I have a problem with this. And I ask my students, do you agree? Should we have done the simulation? Would you have remembered it better had we done it? Because, you know, kinesthetic learning. But also, can you see the problems? And we ask, and sometimes we have different answers depending on the year. But again, empowering them to make those kinds of discernment choices. We're not, we are certainly the ones doing the discernment when it comes to curriculum. But we should also be empowering them to be doing some of that discernment too. We're doing them a disservice if we do it all for them and just, you know, spoon feed them the pre-chewed bird food. That, this is a terrible metaphor. <laughs> I have my own personal views on Kyperian sphere sovereignty, as in, like, what's the domain of the church, the home, and the school, but we all need to recognize that the school is not a church. Even if all of our schools come from a Reformed background and heritage, we have lots of denominations. I've recently heard at Holland Christian we have 140 or so denominations represented, and the three largest aren't Reformed, Wesleyan, non-denominational, and non-denominational. How do you handle that? How do you teach the Reformation while being hospitable to Roman Catholics? How do you teach about Reformed doctrine, again, without labeling everybody else as reprobates? For you administrators, we'll just throw this out there and then let you deal with it, because you could get paid more. To, uh, you could not pay me enough to be an administrator. God bless you all. This sphere sovereignty has implications for hot-button issues like LGBTQ and all the other things you've heard, like 17,000 presentations about at CEA this year, because I guess it's in the water, maybe? We're not a church. How do we handle it differently? I won't presume to tell you what to do, but considering the differences in purpose between a church and the school is certainly an important part of the conversation. 
So you got two and a half minutes. How about you? How have you defended or showed what reformed education is all about? How do you educate your parents or your students about what it means? How have you worked with churches and homes to complete that famous triangle of learning? Talk to each other about any of those things. Please go, please. Do you have a tab on your school website? What do you do? What do you do to help them 
problem. Because we can't blame people for stuff they've never learned, right? I mean, in some ways, we're asking them for stuff that they, no one's ever taught them. I think we have to get them in our classrooms, right? Like, Brent having Brian and Ryan in his classroom is huge when we've had judges come in or when you have, like, you invite the community in. Deb Top invites speakers in. I think the more you get them in the building to see that we are the real deal, I think that's when it's the most important thing. I think marketing, social media, like for your schools, and pushing that out there as much as you can, that's great. Tell what's happening, not just the fundraisers, not just, I mean, and I love athletics, obviously. Not just the sports. <coughs> well, but just the day-to-day -day of what's happening. I mean, I never, I'm again calling up people from my school, Tom Knapper does this review game in Spanish class that all of a sudden is on social media, and everybody knows you know, what's happening in Spanish class. Like, you think it's ordinary. Oh, this is just what happens, you know. I hold a Pokemon umbrella over a kid's head to teach about Dome of the Rock, you know. Like, okay, but that's the kind of stuff that gets people like, oh, look what's happening over there. Pretty, pretty good stuff. Yeah? From an elementary perspective, I teach kindergarten. So I put a lot of things in my home note about all these things. I just, every week, a little something. Snippets of why I do what I do or how I handle the situation, and then it, it, it resonates with this. And then I every week I have a star student's family member come in and read to the kids, and we ask two we ask a question, we ask it twice. First I ask the kindergartner, what does your parent do while you're at school? And then I ask the parent, what do you do while the kindergartner's at school? And that's always <laughs> a funny answer. But then I ask, what do you what did you have to learn or what were you good at? What gifts did God give you as a person and the things you learned in school to make you prepared for your job? And that's really interesting. That's wonderful. Those little recorded snippets, you know. I mean, David, what do you think of your does? You tell us to an office. Yeah, nice. Very nice. You know, Caleb, you know, he said not just sports, but right or wrong. But it brings in a lot of outside people. So our, why are, we can put a little bit more time and work into what does our student section do? What are our And how can we show that and get outside people to ask this question? Well, why did you do that? Well, let me tell you. You know, or does your does your coach of the varsity sport that gets the most attention have a statement in your sports booklet about what this has to do with being a Christian athlete? I mean, every year our, our guide says, Mary, would you proofread this? So happily. So happily. I want that to I want them to know how this is an important part of Christian education. Same with the concerts that you, that you have. When you have kids come up there and talk about, you know, this piece of music may be written by a non-Christian, but what did we see in it? What did we learn about ourselves? What did we do operating together as a body of the band or the orchestra or the choir? I mean, those kinds of things, yeah, that's that's amazing. We need to get people in to see it. And, you know, with the whole live streaming option, which we hated and what was the only option, but, you know, what was the only option? I saw comments on our choir concert and orchestra concert in a different language because this kid's grandparents in the Philippines were watching her concert. I mean, that was pretty cool. So, pulling people in like that. Just to clarify, not just sports. Please do include <laughs> sports. Please highlight them well. They're a very integral part of school. But that just shouldn't be the only thing. Like, aha, another state championship for us. Like, and oh, the student section. The student section. The number one reason people don't like Christian schools in general. The student section usually. So, while the things that we've been talking about, oh, that's your part, says CBL. Sorry. We got a few more. We got a few more. We got that that vertical run right there. 
Um, perhaps you got some other ones along the way. We did mention scholarship. We did mention fall. But you know what? This is an incomplete picture, just like the story is incomplete. We need to keep it going. And if you skip one, please give us some grace. <laughs> Caleb, you want to read your last little ending bit there, and, and then I'll read my last little ending oh, bit. I didn't pull up my last little ending bit. Plan how we were going to, you know, end this. <laughs> Hold on, one second. I, so, I deleted like, that. I don't have an ending. So uh, while the above items are exclusively reformed, we hope you can provide you with a variety of important ideas to consider applying and pondering. Those are the smallest words you've ever used. Um, <laughs> Thanks for thinking about some of those questions along with us today. Speaking of questions.